Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Noam Chomsky recently stated, an independent observer looking at the world today might well conclude that it is being run by the fossil fuel and military industries, or by lunatics, or both. And who might be the lunatics? Well, Chomsky claims that the Republican Party is the most dangerous organization in human history, especially in their refusal to fight climate change or even deny that the global phenomenon is real. Hyperbole? Exaggeration? Overstatement? Our guest today thinks not, and makes a convincing case that Chomsky might just be that cartoon character in the New York Times magazine carrying the sign down the sidewalk that reads, quotes, the end is near, close quotes. Let's discuss. Well, here we are. Uh, warm greetings. We've got a really good guest today that Greg and I have spend, been spending a lot of time talking about the themes that were put forth in, in your book, Charlie. Uh, let me give you a little background. You are a, a professor of sociology at Boston College. And before we started taping, we just realized that all three of us grew up within 20 miles of each other in central Illinois. That's uh, literally the case. Yeah. Champaign. And uh, and so we're uh, we're you know, we're, we're cut from the same cloth as far as that goes. And you you've written 25 books, which is pretty impressive it's not chomsky but it's you're <laughs> just keep at well, it and you'll get there. you know you got to give me another 13 years and yeah. then <laughs> i am very good friends with chomsky and he's he's doing well and uh i'm i'm just he'll he keeps going you know oh so. he's a he's a national treasure yeah. uh and you're the, the 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 what you write about is the crisis of capitalism uh globalization corporate power militarism a climate crisis, and that is why we have you here because you are uh, have written this book called "Dying for Capitalism: How Big Money Fuels Extinction and What We Can Do About It." And you wrote this with a co co-author. Um, mm. I should book. say my co my co-author. Thank you. Um, my co-author is um, a guy from South Africa whose father was very close um to the ANC and um so he grew up in a South African environment and he's a very engaged political activist on the east coast very active in democratic socialists uh, and many other political groups um so I'm sorry he can't be there he's having some health problems although he's a fairly young person but um anyway I'm sorry he can't be here to join us good good and you just got out of, you just got out of class teaching a I class did. I huh? ran out of class to get here yep oh good good uh, tell tell us about your book. Well, the book um, is an effort to what I my mind works this way, and I can't help it. It makes connections between issues and things. One of the reasons I don't like universities is they carve up problems or topics into a sociology department, an economics department, a history department, a political. You know, I can't. My mind doesn't function that way. It can't be pushed into these. Um, and I think these are divisions that are very hard um, in terms of leading to understanding of these really big problems because they're so intertwined. So 
the environmental movement uh, and whatever anti-war movement that we desperately need but don't have a very strong one right now, um, they tend to emerge somewhat separately from you know economic justice movements or anti-racist movements and so forth. And most of my writing, including in this book, is helping people sort of knit together problems that I think are you know economically, politically, and culturally all wrapped up in one sort of over you know one not so pretty you know big package and in order to know how to deal with these problems i think it's very important to um to see these connections that are usually not discussed so this book focuses on what i call the triangle of extinction so if you imagine in your mind um I could actually put there it is. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll superimpose that, but describe it because yeah. about. So most there of you our, go. So yeah. what I, that's a causal picture. Thanks for um, copying. I could have put it up there myself. Um, it so it's what it's saying is that um, our economic system is sort of hardwired to do two terribly um you know dangerous things one is it creates environmental death it, it it's a system it's a system wired that is our particular for at least our particular form of neoliberal capitalism is hardwired for environmental destruction and that's most manifested by climate change but it it involves biodiversity crises you know we're killing off about a thousand species of of animals a day um so we have um, and, you know, pandemics are in, in large part resulting from environmental spread of invasion of uh, wilderness by, um, you know, loggers and miners and other people who don't belong in wilderness. Um, so part of this triangle of extinction is saying that as long as we're embracing our current economic system, we're buying into, you know, a terrible environmental future that we probably won't easily survive. The other part of the triangle suggests that we're also our economic system is also hardwired to expand both economically and militarily in a way that generates um, pretty much the kind of endless wars that we're we've seen um, all through American history and we're sort of living in a period of today. And then the third part of the triangle is the what you see at the bottom of the triangle. Maybe you could pull that up again um, and so at the bottom, these arrows are causal arrows. And so capitalism is helping fuel environmental destruction. It's helping fuel militarism. But the two are very importantly related to each other. So militarism fuels climate change and environmental destruction. And environmental destruction um, fuels militarism. It's interesting that the Pentagon, you know, is annually required to state to the American people every year what it sees as the the most important um, national security threats to America. So do you guys know what they've been saying for a number of years is the most important national security threat to the United States? What? Climate change. They, they and of course, it's not hard to understand why. You know, um, climate change is producing, you know, we're now melting you know, much of the Arctic and the Antarctic, sea level is rising. Over half the people in the world within, live within 50 to 60 miles of an ocean or a sea. That what that means is if you live in Bangladesh or you live, you know, in, in some parts of California, it's possible that you're, or in Florida, for example, 
you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are going to find their inhabitable space disappearing. Right now in Florida, they won't insure a lot of homes because of temperature, floods, and so forth are making them uninsurable. So people have to leave. When people have to leave, um, it produces a lot of tensions. What the military is worried about is these climate-induced migrations that pit one population against another for scarce land and scarce resources. So, um, and of course, so that's that's one thing. What the build, what the Pentagon does not tell us is that the biggest institutional carbon emitter in the world, the biggest, um, do you know, guys know who what that is? Well, that's our military. I learned and that in your book. Yeah, I, you're exactly right. The, the Pentagon- By far. By far. By yeah. far. Um, right. And you know, there's a longer history of this. This book has a history about this triangle. It's a really interesting history. I learned a lot from um, reading about it. I mean, wars have played a really important role in pushing um, ca American capitalism toward fossil fuel. You know, when the British Industrial Revolution began, it, it I re I learned from doing preparation of research for this book that you know there was a lot of water power that looked like it might be a water water steam power might have been a leading fuel for you know capitalist industry. Um, the capitalists, the the early industrialists, um, abandoned it not because it wasn't efficient or potentially a good source of energy, but because they thought water was so much part of what people might think of as the com commons that might, people might feel, hey, water is something that belongs to all of us, not just to businesses that want to use it to you know, produce and make a profit. Um, they, they decided it was too risky to essentially invest heavily in you know, building um, an energy grid built around renewables like water, for, for example. So they pushed toward um, oil and coal and gas. And you know, another really interesting thing that I found in the historical work on this is that the, particularly the push toward oil got very, very accelerated by war. So that, you know, um, well, you know, the early capitalist state um, of Rockefeller and Morgan um, emerged out of the Civil War. I mean, the connections between war and capitalism go very far back. And modern capitalism really emerged out of the, the railroad financing of the um, Civil War. And the money that was then paid that, that sort of put together national markets um, after, by the robber barons, you know, J.P. Morgan. And, and that's where oil started. But, you know, the building with Rockefeller in the, um, you know, in the 1890s at the peak of the robber baron gilded, the first gilded age. We live in a second gilded age today, of course, in many ways. Um, but the, the coming of World War One put enormous um, pressure on governments to, to subsidize and accelerate and expand to get as much fuel from oil as possible because the early planes and ships and tanks in World War I were very dependent on oil. So it's just interesting uh, to note that the two world wars played a very, talk about the intertwining of economics and war. The wars gave rise to the fossil fuel kind of capitalism that got locked in. Um, it probably would have gone that way anyway, but it, it's an important factor in understanding that capitalism emerged in this very fossil fuel dependent way. It's interesting that theoretically, one could imagine a capitalist economy without 
being fueled by coal or gas or oil. But, you know, the way historically it unfolded, it, it was not going to happen. I mean, the labor issues, for example, coal, which was used, um, they moved away in the United States from coal toward oil and gas, partly, again, because um, not because of the efficiency and cost issues, except for labor. You know, coal workers are particularly rebellious people. They are under, they're together in, you know, in very dangerous working conditions, and they form unions and solidarity that, you know, that made coal workers seem problematic to many business people who did not like the idea of workers banding together the way coal miners tended to do. So again, they that was another reason that they moved heavily toward oil and, and so forth. So anyway, the basic argument of the book is sort of, you know, sort of explaining in some historical and sort of um, cultural and economic way, the reasons that our economic system are, is a major driver of you know extinction by and you know let me just step back for a minute because the word extinction is in the subtitle and people who are listening to this conversation might say well what exactly do you mean by extinction and there's kind of an interesting discussion about that because the first thing you might think of is well a major nuclear war which simply blows up everything um and everything is destroyed but there's actually um, philosophers and um, sociologists and people who think about these grim subjects have written a lot on the subject of extinction and in the very early part of the book i talk about that um and you know extinction is not simply this is to make you a little bit happier. It's not to say necessarily that our system is going to blow everything up immediately, but rather there's a spectrum of kind of ebbing and curtailing of life possibilities. And you can see certain areas of life continuing, um, not at the full flourishing that one would want to see with life. And so, you know, in talking about extinction, we're talking about serious erosions of our ability to live full, meaningful, creative, and sustainable lives, but not necessarily total death of all, of, of everything. On the other hand, the possibility of total death of everything is not insignificant, right? I mean, the possibility of um, sort of a, a nuclear war or an irreversible climate disaster and so forth that would lead to uh, basically um, destruction of all life on the planet is is a real possibility. So we're not talking fun and games here. We're talking about real possibilities and um, things that it's remarkable that we have a political party today that is totally in denial about the climate. I mean, the Republican Party is totally in denial of the idea of climate change. And a large number of Americans reject the idea that climate change is happening. That's a scary thing in the world's most powerful country. Right. Um, and the Democratic Party being also to large degree a corporate party, what makes American political economy a little bit unusual is that we don't really have any labor party. We have two corporate parties. Both parties are funded primarily by very wealthy people and big corporations. In contrast to say European forms of social democracy or capitalism, where there are labor parties, which are still you know, heavily driven um, by big money, but which have been able to sort of carve out from the market um, areas which are sort of organized outside of, you know, the profit realm where, you know, we, this neoliberal system of capitalism, which we really saw coming after the New Deal. Um, and I, I wrote an earlier book you guys might have seen called Regime Change Begins at Home. And I argue that American history can be seen as a series of regimes. Now, here's a little bit of hope 
for Greg and for Luca thing. I mean, history suggests that you know things, very big things, can change. In fact, at the very end of this book, we talk about uh, the end of the abolitionist movement as one. Well, before, many- before you get into that, because I I really want to jump in and chat about that. Yeah, I'm going to okay. bring I want to bring Greg into this conversation. I, I, don't, I don't know if you know, but all of Greg's family were coal miners. So that what you're talking oh, about, about the, oh, interesting. <laughs> the coal mining and right. growing up in a coal right. mining community. Right. But Greg is also, a, a I don't know, Greg, it's not you, you're actually a pretty prominent Marxist scholar. I would say that's not an exaggeration. And you serendipitously yesterday published a long article, an overdue look at the climate crisis. And in a way, it's very, very similar to Charlie's book uh, in in saying that this is um, this is a problem. It's real. We've got to figure out a way to have solutions to it, and um, and it's tied to the 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 fact that capitalism, in order to exist, needs to consume. And at a certain point in time, you can point the finger directly to capitalism. What am I getting that correct, Greg? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's the point. What I like about uh, the uh, triangle, I think it's really a, a contribution, is the fact that it points to militarism. That's usually <laughs> left out by most environmental activists, most people on the left, in fact, and the broad left, um, social democrats. They don't see militarism as, as a direct cause, as, as a causal factor, a cause of, uh, by capitalism. So that's a positive, but what I what I what I'm a little disappointed is I think it it minimizes all the negative outcomes of capitalism. For example, it's not just the it's not just the environment that capitalism is destroying, and it's certainly not just neoliberalism as a form or an aspect of capitalism, but capitalism in general, but the political system. We've our political system has evolved to a point where it's in dire, dire crisis, as as deep and profound a crisis as the environmental crisis, and it's a direct directly caused by capitalism. So we need a we need a different figure, not a triangle, but something with many, many more legs. Same thing is capitalism has also produced the nationalism, which in turn feeds the wars, but is also a factor in in splitting people up and dividing people in this country. Uh, ethnic conflict and so on. Of course, it's a direct producer of imperialism. It is the source of imperialism in 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 the world. So, it it seems to me there's um, um, a great contribution by adding militarism, but there's a lot left out. A so lot great. of what capitalism has produced, it's been left out uh, mm-hmm. with the triangle. And I think the triangle should have many, many more sides than just the. I try yeah, and should, should have a neo uh, right wing neo fascism hyper nationalism throw in racism there that fuels yeah, it. Yeah, let me know. if I can just respond to Greg because I appreciate his you know what he said that that so many people these days forget about war and militarism and focus simply on environmentalism maybe on capitalism if they're left although most don't. But Greg, what I wanted to say is the book spends a great deal of time dealing with the politics of of militarism and of the politics of capitalism. I, I mean, the, the whole reason, a lot of the hard wiring is political for why capitalism overwhelmingly tends toward both environmental death and toward imperialism and militarism, which are all intertwined together. So actually, there is a good deal in the book about the political, um, sort of the, the political 
the whole argument of the book is that the politics of, of our state and our policies, environmental policies, military policies, are driven by the capitalist order. And um, so I would say that while it's true that I don't put politics right in that triangle, politics is the underlying blood of that of that triangle. In other words, if you didn't have a political system that was enforcing capitalist, you know, property rights, which was not, which was enforcing, you know, foreign policy and imperial policies that corporations need to enrich themselves. I mean, the entire um, narrative of the book is about the political system that sort of connects these three parts of the triangle. And so, you know, it's, um, there's a great deal in this book. I mean, I appreciate you're saying this, and I can imagine drawing this differently in a way that you could put, you know, everything from, you know, a current, you know, neo-fascism. Um, I'm, I'm writing a book on democracy and fascism right now, which I could have easily integrated into this book. But um, you can't, this, the, the Dying for Capitalism book is all about the politics that are driven by our economic system. And um, it, I agree with you, it's not just neoliberal. Neoliberalism is kind of the most extreme form of this, but you can go back to almost any period of American capitalism and see these same political forces at work. So, you know, capitalism is, you know, I, I think of myself, uh, as a political economist, which is to say the economic system can't operate without a political system, which is basically carrying out the economic imperatives of that system. And so, you know, capitalism depends on the state to basically carry out a foreign policy, which is an imperial foreign policy, an empire, and full of war. So capitalist politics are all over militarism and the way I de develop it in the book. And the same with environmentalism. And the same is true about the internal dynamics. You know, I look at public health issues. You know, the, I don't, it's not part of the, um, they, it's, I treat it as part of the environmental um, thing. But the book also deals a lot with COVID and pandemics as a public health issue. That's a capitalist crisis as well. People all tend to separate public health crises from the economy. But, you know, even looking back at, you know, if you read Charles Dickens in the early 19th century, the industrial, it developed with massive pandemics like cholera and tuberculosis and so forth that were killing, you know, what about 40% of the population of many European countries and so forth. So I I just want uh, to say to Greg that I entirely agree that you can't understand this triangle of extinction without thinking about politics. It is it is run, you, the connections between capitalism and environment, between capitalism and itself are political, right? Capitalism is a political system. I, I often say to people um, who say, well, capitalism is simply about um, diminishing the market. Well, it's about diminishing the market the, um, the, I'm sorry, diminishing the state, that it diminishes the state for ordinary people's well-being and, and needs. But, you know, capitalism supports a very large government for large corporations. The largest system of welfare in America is the corporate welfare system. There's more money that the state is doling out to large corporations, whether it's tax uh, depreciations, whether it's um, sort of um, subsidies of various kinds, um, all kinds of write-offs, all kinds of foreign policy. The capitalism 
is a kind of socialism for the rich. It takes large amounts of public money and diverts it into corporate needs, diverting it away from the taxpayers who are, you know, forking up the money. So the book actually rests on a political analysis, both in terms of the causal issues that are being described and the um, the solutions, which are ultimately have to be political. So. Um, yeah, it's I have thoughts about that, Greg. What do you What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I I appreciate that, and I and I appreciate it in the book um, that you delved into these connections. And uh, my fault with the model really is I see that kind of a simplistic model is in, in, inadequate to show how all these things fit together. You talk in your narrative very well about how they all fit together. What troubles me about the model models can be good and can be bad they, they serve different purposes but what troubles me is it might give the impression that if we had just get rid of militarism if we could get rid of that we could have a viable capitalism and that capitalism without militarism without war and so on that aspect of that's produced by capitalism would would be a a humane capitalism yeah. and i think that's an impression you could draw from a triangle constructed in that way yeah, I, I don't think you get the same impression i didn't i don't think you get the same impression from the the narrative but i know no, that, no. that but, but greg actually if you look yeah. at the book um, carefully you'll see that when i look at describing capitalism the first real analysis is about how the system itself operates put aside environmental change put aside military so what are we talking about in capitalism and i lay out a system which shows that capitalism is itself a system which is hardwired to divert resources uh wages health all kinds of public goods that people need to survive away from the general population toward concentrated wealth um and among you know the the, the what historically would be called the capitalist class, what people call the 1% now and so forth. So the book is founded and much of the argument in the book is about these things are not just causal arrows of a good system that are happened to be producing these negative externalities of climate change and militarism. It's an argument that even if there were no climate change consequence and no militarism consequences, which is impossible, but if you if it were true, the book, anybody who read this book would see very clearly why capitalism is itself unsustainable over the long period of time, because it's essentially a system which is wiring public labor and public resources away from the general population into a tiny group of people. I mean, this is obvious to most people when they look at the data about inequality today. You know, you've got like about 10 people about the 10 richest people in the United States that have over 60% of the wealth of the entire population. Um, there's there's quite a bit of data on the inequality, simply the basic questions of inequality of wealth and, and, and um, income in the book. And so anybody looking at that, as well as looking at how, you know, profit, requirements of profit um, sort of override every human need to, and sort of push it down toward reducing the population to a kind of dependent, um, you know, consumer-oriented, privatized, um, and alienated labor, which is really, I mean, it's sort of traditional, if you're a relatively traditional Marxist, Greg, um, it's not very different in that respect. The core of the book is an argument about how capitalism, you know, prioritizes profit above all other social, cultural, um, ec you know, 
needs in the society. So anybody who reads this book is going to get a little bit of a treatise about the, the internal dynamics of capitalism. What is capitalism? How it works? Why is it, in a sense, socialism for the rich and capitalism for everybody else? Um, and so would they conclude would they conclude that capitalism should be abolished? Would they conclude that, that uh, capitalism that's, should be approached? Uh, that's what I got out of the book. With something I mean, else. I and think it's is about that, as, is that something. Yeah, is that something else? Socialism, is that what it advocates? I mean, I didn't get that even by using I, your index. Yeah, I, I saw socialism in quotation marks in a few cases. I saw some allusions to social democratic parties in Europe and so on. But is your conclusion? Did you mean your conclusion? Do you mean your conclusion to be? that socialism is what we ought to be opting for. Yeah, I, I do talk about that. I talk about it largely, it might've been the language I used about that, Greg, that, that where it didn't come through as clearly. I talk a lot about public goods. And what I mean by, and saying that basically capitalism is a system that universalizes commodification. You know, Marx started his earliest work by talking about the fetishism of commodities, by which he meant, you know, capitalism kind of produces a kind of, almost sexual appetite for consuming commodities of all kinds. Everything, you know, Nobel Prize neoclassist economy say children should be bought and sold on the market. Everything is a commodity that should be bought and sold on the market. So when I talk about the, the whole last part of the book is about how to create a society which is taking more and more out of the market and into basically what traditional Marxists would call a socialist system, which I call a system of public goods, by which I mean a system where things are being removed from private production for commodity selling on the market toward public production, whether it's through national company, national ownership, or through local community ownership or worker ownership. I mean, a wide, wide range. I'm very ecumenical about the idea of what has to be, what can emerge as you know, we begin to sort of dismantle all the building blocks of capitalism. But yes, it's basically an argument that the, 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 the commodity fetishism and the sort of privatized system of production has basically destroyed the system of public goods, which is public you know, the, basically the idea that our economy should be organized as a form of public production for public goods. Um, and so I don't think if, if you read this carefully, you can misread this as any kind of manifesto for any kind of capitalism beyond the idea of the idea that um, this, the, the capitalism we have is actually a form of socialism for the rich. The rich are using the state and using um, all of the economic resources that they control to enrich themselves at the cost of the life and death of everybody else, whether it's their wages or it's their environmental conditions or their, you know, their wars. But um, in some ways, I, I think it, it's sort of like overloaded that way in a certain sense, because it's saying that mm -hmm. beyond all the classical reasons why people have critiqued capitalism, there are these um, you know, intertwined reasons related to, you know, environmental destruction and to war, um, which need to be intertwined with all the classical critiques of the way in which capitalism generates a kind of toxic, poisonous inequality that essentially undermines the possibility of a decent life um, economically uh, and politically 
for the great majority of the population. And, and I think that is a discussion you can have today. You know, polls show that ordinary people are outraged. I mean, the, the fact that so many people supported the UAW strike that just happened today is a find about 80% of people today say they like, even though we're at a very low point of labor organization, um, 10%, about 10% of the labor force is, is unionized. About 80% of the um, population said they were supporting the UAW in this strike and the Hollywood strikes and the initial Amazon and other strikes. There's a real sympathy, I think, growing in the population. There's enormous outrage, both on the right and the left, about the concentration of wealth in the country. And that's what these strikes, I think, have been kind of buoyed by a little bit because the, the inequality levels, when I talk about a second Gilded Age, the inequality levels have become so manifest to people. People, you know, the in, in the auto industry, the fact that, you know, in the last 10 years, the, the three CEOs um, gained um, a billion dollars, personally, those, those three CEOs, whereas workers' wages went down over the same period of time since the, the, the um, last agreement um, by 15% roughly. So um, yeah, the book is just, I don't disagree with you, Greg. That I, I disagree with Greg because yeah, I, I, when I read your book, I thought that you were as clear as anything that you will not solve this climate issue unless you turn away from capitalism. They can't right. Co you they can't operate. Un unpack that bad. I mean, I, I want to hear what you have to say. Unpack what you mean about this is my problem. What does it mean to turn away from capitalism? You can't capitalism by the nature of it having to, to oh I understand that. What does grow, it mean? What's is the, what is the turn away? What is the turn away? What constitutes a turning away? Is it incremental? Is it well, we've got to undo what's been done by Reagan and Thatcher? Is that what it is? No, or what no. is it? Yeah. What is it? I mean, that's my, my question. Yeah. What is it? What's yeah. The well, I in? think I think in the last part of the book, I really make that pretty clear that we're talking about moving toward a system of basically public production and public goods, by which classically Marxists would say what you're talking about is a kind of collective ownership of the means of production, um, which might mean um, ownership by the state. It might mean ownership by um, workers. It might mean ownership by um, communities. Um, I mean, I think I am much more ecumenical than orthodox Marxists about what a publicly an, an economy that's organized not for profit on the market, but for public good, what that would look like. But it would be public provisions and it would necessarily exclude any model of capitalism that we come to historically understand. In other words, it, could, it is not consistent with private ownership of large amounts of capital for simply who, commodity production on the market or for political- be, Who will be the agent for this, Charlie? Who will be, who will be the agency? Where, where, where does the agency right. come from? So I have and a- Who will produce this? Yeah, so, what political formation, what organization, right. what party? What group of people? What social class? Who is going to produce this? I mean, I agree yeah. with you. I'm not. Yeah. I don't disagree right. at all about so where, this, this, kind of where we want to go. But how do this, we get there? Yeah. So this has been the subject of a lot of my writing um, over the last, you know, five or six books I've done. It's been a critique. I think this question of who is the agent of change has been misread very badly by the contemporary left. There's been a shift ever since the end of the New Deal away from 
sort of the idea of class as an organizing principle that can work in the United States. So post New Deal, we moved um, toward a kind of identity politics, which I call a kind of siloed identity politics, where the idea of the left moved away from the idea of sort of a kind of agency for change that can come out of class-based um, solidarity among working people of you know different races and genders and so forth into a identity politics where our our left movements became based on racial identity and racial power or gender um, identity and dealing with um, sexism or racism divorced from class system and I've, I've written about three books on the the contradictions that are emerging on the left between class politics and identity politics. And I think one of the reasons that places like where you're from, Greg, in Rantoul and so forth, are now sympathetic to the, um, the Trumpist right is that the left movements have basically abandoned white working people on the, in the argument that they're basically enjoying a form of white privilege. Uh, and people who have been just deindustrialized by loss of their jobs um starting you know very intensely in the 1980s with um the, the sort of global capitalist revolution that took place at that point um it would it's ironic that at a time where class issues were becoming extremely intense in the united states and around the world the american left was shifting away from class politics toward a kind of identity politics that privileged race issues and gender issues and LGBTQ issues and so forth over and to the exclusion of class issues. Now, my view is that race and gender and gender orientation are important issues. I think that the rights of those communities is very important. But the left has developed a mode of organizing for change, which basically pits these groups against each other. It says the defining uh, element of the way you can organize people is around their racial identity or their, you know, their their gender or their gender orientation, um, and or even broader, you know, whether their disability, their uh, whatever it is. And this is a kind of extremely, in my view, it's extremely counterproductive to um, thinking about change because, um, as important as race and gender, these are incredibly crucial issues. When the, when a progressive society when a, when a progressive movements in a society move toward this kind of what I call siloed identity politics, each group is kind of defined in its own silo. It has its own identity. It it can potentially link to other groups, and they, they talk about intersectionality that way. But the, in fact, the way that are these identity politics have evolved over time is basically to say we don't much care about class. I mean, what what is the success of a anti-racist movement, of a, an, a feminist movement, is to make sure that women have as much chance of getting into the corner office as men do. Blacks can get. So you had Obama, who basically was not willing to challenge the basic economic principles of the society. So, and what happened? The wealth gap actually grew under Obama's administration. The, the disparity between well-to-do Blacks and poor Blacks grew. Why was there not any response to that? Because for ever since the end of the New Deal, which I date to about 1980, that, that particular era of regime, the, the progressive movements moved overwhelmingly to, to abandon class as a basis for organizing. And by class, I mean very broadly, the idea that needed people needed to 
in to sort of organize around the fundamental issues of um, their life around work and income and you know social conditions that were shared across all kinds of different races and genders and um, you know identity uh, things. So I think that and this the book is very explicit about this. If it makes an argument about why the current form of left politics needs to be re reconfigured closer to the way that was happened in the New Deal. Um, where there was a very strong focus on the meaning of class, you know, class and class power and um, the kind of politics that arises from confronting the economic system through the collective power of people across race, gender, and other identity uh, divisions. So, yeah, my view is that um, these strikes that we've just seen are a glimmering, just a glimmer, because we're still at 10%. Um, you know, in Scandinavia right now, which is still quite conservative as if the elites are going more neoliberal in Europe, but you've got 70% of the population in a labor party and one large labor group. In the United States, you have 10%. You have an overwhelming desire on the part of the population to see much more of the labor force unionized because it's obvious. There's this simple, you don't need a lot of political ideology to say that the masses of people are sort of stagnant. The average wage in the country has gone down over the last 50 years, household income and wage, even with more people working. While the, the income of the very top part of the population has risen you know, astronomically. I mean, the level of, of inequality between the very wealthy and the mass of the population has never been this great. And so, um, but you know, going back to the argument of the book, it's that these things are all intertwined. These extreme toxic levels of inequality are tied to, you know, political power concentrated overwhelmingly among a tiny group of people, the Koch brothers network, I call it, you know, Kokomami democracy. It's like it's a kind of politics that basically calls itself democratic but basically serves the interests of this tiny group of people that are pouring literally hundreds of billions of dollars into politics, lobbying, and so forth every year. So um, the argument is that, um, you know, absolutely the, the solution to the environmental crisis, to the military crisis, and to the, is, is all tied up with politics and with the politics of a class system what is the politics of a classist right. capitalism? But, but, you know, before you got on, um, Greg and I were arguing and yelling at each other and, and such. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think we can all agree that Chomsky is correct when he says the Republican Party is the most dangerous organization in human history right now because of climate denial. You, you believe that? You believe oh, that? Oh, Trump. I, I, I think when Trump takes and says that we purges every mention of climate change, when he allows I, for the drilling, when he allows for the fracking. I, I, I'm, I'm I, no friend of Trump's, but you believe that? I mean, you believe that. Oh, absolutely. That Reaganism, absolutely. Reaganism, when it was here, when it was here, Nixon, when Nixon was in power, of course, in retrospect, he looks like a liberal. But but these threats have always been there. That's a feature of the of the capitalist system. That's well, that way I want to I want to I want to get, get let's let's let me ask. Let me ask a question. In okay. general, I think what's right. been helped beyond this, and that is, do either of you think that the existing two-party system can get us out from 
the kind of crises that we all agree, we all agree exist today in America. I might take a different stance on it or a different slant at it than, than, than others, but we all agree we're in a profound, deep crisis. Can this two-party system as it exists today, can you find a way out of this mess with That's, this system? Uh, let, let, Forget let about answer, Trump for a minute. Let, let me answer that first, because I was, I was finishing my thought on that. It's not just the Republicans. It's it. I'm part of the problem. I have a Chevy Bolt EV. My vanity license plates say Chomsky. <laughs> I, you are not going to get out of this situation with this green growth. You're not going to get out of this situation. The, what I got from your book, Charlie, clearly is the only way you're going to get out of this situation is to revisit the concept of capitalism, of the this accumulate, accumulate and focus on social usefulness and not just profits. You can't solve this solution by me putting up a solar thing and, and uh, you know- Yeah, and, I'm so and, glad you mentioned this because there's, there's a long critique in the book of quote, green capitalism as a kind of oxymoron. Um, and you're, you're putting it very well that, you know, anyway, if you're living in a system that's hardwired for simply producing more and more and to get people simply to, to consume more and more, it's a system that there is no way that it can, the system can be sustained in its current form and have any kind of chance of maintaining any kind of environmental you know, sustainability. It's just not possible. So one overwhelmingly powerful argument for changing our economic system, which I think most climate movements have not yet embraced, even though you put it very clearly, it's at the heart of my book, is that green capitalism is not possible. There, I mean, you can move certain things, you can build more solar panels and wind turbines and build more electric cars, but you're going to continue, capitalism is going to continue to produce a kind of burden. You know, capitalism, nobody's ever produced a model of a stable, stable, steady set growth, of, I mean, non-growth capitalism. Um, and therefore, capitalism by its nature is a kind of system that generates infinite appetites for stuff on a finite planet. You simply can't keep burdening the planet with more and more demands for its finite resources, its finite land, its finite, you know, people and animals. Where, you know, this thing I mentioned about pandemics are emerging from the fact that every year we're bulldozing into more jungles and more forests, which are essential for the preservation both of trees and of animal species, which um, we're now simply... You know, part of this is human hubris that we were put on the planet just for our own profit. In this case, you know, the, the profit of very small numbers of people. But, you know, you read my book right that, you know, the idea that you could have environmental sanity or survive environmentally in a capitalist system is structurally absolutely impossible. And the book lays out in very great detail why green capitalism, the kind of Bill Gates model, of you know forming it's sort of based on this idea that's very popular in the United States that technologies are both the cause and the problem you know the solution is a problem so bill gates gets up there as do millions of you know high tech you know you know private equity firms and high tech people who say look we have the solution it's in the new technology that we're producing and the, you know it's not like i don't think technology is important but tech this technological discourse is a way of diverting people 
I mean, I, I mean, what Bill Gates says, hey, look at what I'm doing. I'm using my fortune to create more, you know, money for both pandemic and for, you know, a green technology. He is doing something that looks very good. It's sort of like the way corporations use charity. You know, corporations legitimate themselves in the population by producing all these. Every rich family has its own foundation, which is basically actually a way to do two things. It's one, to legitimate their respectability in the population. Look at We got all this money and look at all the good things we're, we're contributing to. But second, there, um, if you look carefully at the finances, most of these charitable foundations are actually ways of shielding um, the ownership, the actual ownership and beneficiaries of these foundations so that they essentially avoid taxation through charitable foundations. My friend Chuck Collins, who you guys should talk to sometime, wrote, just wrote a book called The Wealth Hoarders and um, also a book called Born on Third Base. Um, he, he studies this industry of people who are accountants and lawyers that basically cater to the very wealthy and who sh shelter all their money. I mean, if we could get at this money to tax it, we would have trillions of dollars that we could use for good purposes, whether it's wages or environmental security and so forth. But yeah, my, my view is that um, the technology argument is simply part of the capitalist cultural cap capture of discourse by, by capitalists to say, if you want to solve the environmental problem, just create more green technology. And what that misses, and you read it, you know, I think correctly that in the book, what I'm arguing is that technology is an important thing, but it's not going to, it's not going to unburden the planet from a system that is hell-bent on producing as much material good for profit as, as you can possibly produce. That, that it's, simply, it's, it's simply not possible to do. And I would argue the same thing about war, that you know, as you know, the kind of idea that you can have the, the dominant discourse is, well, you know, neoconservatives, uh, people, the dominant, you know, foreign policy people in the United States and the West say democracies, Western capitalist democracies never go to war with each other, which is a pretty strange reading way of reading World War One or you know, the colonial wars yeah. and so forth. But but anyway, the argument throughout the book is. One, you cannot have, there is no such thing as a green capitalism. And, and I try to argue why that's not just ideology, why that's really, you know, just logically, analytically, historically, why that is a true statement. Nor is there such a thing as a peaceful capitalism because capitalism as a system is inherently expansionary and violent in the way that it treats both the environment and, um, you know, other people's land and, and property and so forth. But None of this is to detract from what Greg was asking in, in the, about whether if you simply bracketed environmental and military issues, would you then have a nice, attractive economic system? The book is for the very reasons that capitalism cannot be green and cannot be peaceful. It also cannot be socially or uh, economically um, sustainable over the long run. It's not viable because it simply concentrates wealth and power and uh, in, a, in a very small part of the population. And it creates a form of politics and culture that are so, you know, the, you know, sort of so diverting of what the needs of ordinary people across the, the spectrum, whether whatever, again, this goes back to the problem, much of the problem in the Democratic Party and the left if you say, can the two-party system do this? Can the Democratic Party help solve these problems? Well, we live in a in a capitalist society 
parties, both parties tend to be corporate. Like I was saying, we have, I used to call them Bush and Bush light. We have, we have a, you know, a very hardcore corporate party and a pretty, you know, a sort of softer corporate party that the Democrats have been. We need a different kind of party. Does that mean we don't try to organize within the Democratic Party? My view is we are in such an urgent, you know, in terms of time crisis and the scale and um, time dimensions we're working. This is not joking around, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years, we not, we, you know, we may not be around to even think about these problems. So that leads me to the idea that you have to be very open and sort of about the way you think about change, that um, I do have a very strong critique of the way in which progressive, and by that I mean both the Democratic Party, progressives, and the left movements have moved away from class politics toward identity politics. I think that, you know, I think race and gender, you know, justice are, are very, very important to achieve, but I think they only can be achieved within a kind of you know, what I call universalizing resistance framework, which it brings together these different movements under a class, a shared class uh, focus, which is also a climate focus, which is also a war focus, you know. So, so, so Greg, so, Charlie, so and suppose, I, Charlie and I suppose, absolutely agree with each other. Tell us what, don't you no, agree? I, look, how, how can you I disagree a, with what, what, I wrote what, what a, Charlie I wrote, just said? I wrote a, look, you, you misunderstand. I wrote a a piece which was a uh, laudatory review of the uh, monthly reviews, great discussion of uh, degrowth, planning and degrowth. And there were 12 authors and they all understood and they all stood right along with Charlie. I mean, I read the sections of your book that, that, that uh, support this, that capitalism is incompatible with solving the environmental crisis. So I recognize that. What I charged them with, and, and I praised the book, the, the, that issue. I'd urge you, Charlie, if you haven't seen it, there are 12 right. different authors. Right. Right. Uh, Bellamy Foster's, he, right, is, right, is, right. read that. It's very, very useful. What I charged them with is where's the agency? They do with what a lot of academics do, and it is they rely on the passive voice. This must be done, and that must be done, and so on and so forth. And they're exactly right. I mean, when it comes to the climate crisis, you get exactly right. Disaster is around the friggin' corner. The question then becomes, what's the agency? Who's going to do Greg, so before, Let me finish. You put your finger on the fact that the labor movement and its motion is very important. I agree. I think it's critical. But it's so far from addressing this issue now, addressing politics in America now, addressing war in America now, and it's got there because of the McCarthy era, which has been totally unmentioned in this thing, and the setbacks to the left that occurred after World War II. So we have basically a disarmed, dysfunctional, and fundamentally anti-communist left in America. And because that's an obstacle to seeing beyond any answers today that will address the urgency. I mean, since, since Reaganism, the Democratic Party has, has retreated dramatically. Why would anyone think today that's when did Reagan get elected? You know, when did he get elected? You know, at, at the end of the, 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 the 70s, early 1980, that's 43 years ago. And the Democratic Party's moved nowhere but right. And now mm -hmm. to solve a crisis that must be solved in 15 years, maybe the Democratic Party can do it. Maybe. I don't think so. But anyway, that leaves me with the question. 
what is the agency? Yeah, what Greg, is going to answer this in in 10, 15 years? Right, Greg. So let me, I want to respond because I agree with you. This is the important question in many ways. You know, why write a book about all these structural right. systemic problems if you don't have a view of how to answer? This is why I mentioned my co-author at the beginning. He's not an academic. He, he grew up in South Africa. He was very good. His father was close friends with Mandela. And he grew up like breathing the air of the ANC movement, you know? So, and what is he today? He's an activist on the ground. He started a, a, a center called Enquentrochenko in Boston. It's a nerve center of the left. It brings together and immigration rights movements, um, feminist movements, public health movements, um, labor people. Um, and it's, it's a center where all different movements of the left can get together, progressive forces um, can get together and kind of both operate and communicate with each other. So my view is that because the Democratic Party has all the limitations that you're talking about, and I, you know, I think it's, it's, they're sort of obvious, um, they're certainly obvious today. Um, although Biden went a little bit further than I thought he was likely to do um, in his first two years. But, you know, my view is, it, given the recognition of how limited the Democratic Party is, given the time frame that we're dealing with, and the weakness of social movements. Um, I mean, when were social movements most powerful in the United States? We saw powerful social, uh, social movements in the 30s. We saw powerful social movements partly in the 60s. You can go back further in history. Um, but we're in a period, I agree with you, where the agency on the ground is weak. And therefore, my, what I take from that, and, and yet we need urgent and mega change, that is change in the large scale systems. So how do you, what do you do with those two things that your your agents on the ground, the way and the way in which they're organized is relatively weak and um, maybe, um, you know, hurting the possibility of change, producing the right wing reaction that we're seeing. Um, I think the culture wars are a reflection a lot of the failure of, you know, of the sort of let's say like the successes of identity politics and the failures of class politics. But my conclusion of that is not that despite my critique of the Democratic Party as a corporate party, I feel like we need, and here's where this, our focus of our book on abolitionism at the end, and this was written by my South African collaborator who grew up, you know, looking at abolitionism in a sense as it came out of the ANC in South Africa, um, but, but also having studied abolitionism in the United States, that, you know, what he came away with you know, the last two chapters of the book are written as a dialogue. This speaks to your issue, Greg, of agency between somebody interviewing a 2020s activist in 2060. And it's a conversation about how did the 2020s activists move toward what we call a very slender path from where they were in the 2020s into the 2060s. And this is informed, and then and then, then that becomes an interview, which takes you up from 2020 to into the future. And it's based on a reading of the past. It's based on a reading. Imagine this was a conversation with abolitionists that were being interviewed in 1820 when, when abolitionism seemed like an impossibly tiny, um, crazily idea. People said it was impossible to change slavery. As people today say, it's impossible to change capitalism. And so the book ends with an, a very open and ecumenical conversation about how do you create large-scale change in systems, large-scale systems, in a period when the, the existing organization on the ground is weak or is organized around 
you know, foundations that are, you know, that are diverting people like around the kind of critique of identity politics that I have. So the last, you know, fourth quarter of the book is exactly addressing this issue of agency. I don't know if it would satisfy you, Greg, but it is an effort to say in the kind of urgency that we're, you know, we're, we're confronting right now, you need a very, I mean, this is one of the lessons that we drew out of abolitionism. It, it was a political movement, a cultural movement. It was a reformist movement, a radical movement. Um, I like, um, I mean, it so was, it was a, it was a religious movement. It was a religious movement and a secular movement. It brought together pacifists with John Brown. It brought together, you know, people like Frederick Douglass and, then people like you know Lloyd Garrison, who was a socialist, with much more traditional people. That's sort of the mapping that we have in the end of um, our book, which is that the last couple of chapters of the book is that you know we have to create a kind of very ecumenical, you know, sort of moving on all fronts at once, economically, politically, culturally, working with every. We don't have a single, you know, agent that we can rely on. We need to mobilize large parts of the population that have not historically been involved in social change or progressive. What I, Charlie, what I found frustrating, what I found frustrating reading that is uh, those were, you know, certainly important, important factors, ideological factors that grew and, and, and fermented. But what, what it resulted in, and, and it's important to, to, to see this, is a veritable political revolution, the creation of a Republican Party, an explosion, a bursting forth of a new political formation, which right. led directly to a civil war which abolished slavery. Right. And that's the whole story. That's, as, as they used to say, the rest of the story. Right. So, yes, there's no question of the importance of that, of, of looking at abolitionism and those, those, those players. But that break with that two-party system, with the Democrats and the Whigs, that fundamental break scared the crap out of the Southerners. And what John Brown added to the formula, the militancy yeah. to go along with that, that, that was the bursting forward of the forces that broke into a civil war that created abolition. So and I that's think that's, that's a really important point. And I think I just, in the book, we treat it a little bit more, we were arguing we're in a systemic crisis that humanity has never faced before. We are living in a period where the emergency that the human you know, population, the human community is facing has never been as severe and extreme and urgent. So let, let's start with that. We're, we happen to be, unfortunately, living in the worst crisis of human history, where all of life is at risk of being extinguished. Um, and then we also happen to be combining that with a period where the economic and political systems and, and the progressive left movements that you would think you would rely on this kind of emergency are in a weakened and distorted form. Um, the parties are incredibly impoverished in the way these in terms of their vision, their revolutionary fervor, their, their understanding of how deep a change in the system we need. Does that mean that you just sort of say, um, I'm not gonna work with the Democratic Party at all? Well, my view is, that basically, again, taking from abolitionism, I, I, let me give you another idea. The um, Andre Gortz, the French um, Marxist and ecologist, and he introduced this idea of radical reform. Um, in our book, we argue that look, we need revolution, we need reform, given the un, you know the unprecedented emergency that we're facing. We need every form of political change strategy that we can use. I like 
Gortz's idea, we talk about it some in the book, about radical reform, it's very different from reformist reform. You know, Gortz says that reformist reforms are reforms that basically lock in the existing system. They, they give the appearance of change without with eventually cementing the actual system, making it harder to change the actual system. A radical reform is a reform that wedges open the possibilities of change in the system. In other words, as soon as you implement the reform, it leads to a, a deeper reform that has to be unfolded. So in a way, the whole argument is, yeah, America is not in a revolutionary mode right now. We don't have a revolutionary party or a revolutionary spirit, even though people, I think, understand increasingly the, the scale of the emergency that we're facing. But what do you, how do you actually move agency-wise in that direction? You, you have to exploit this kind of radical reform in a sense, you know, and that radical reformism, if it does, in fact, as Gort says, opens the door to more and more people to larger and larger reforms that they hadn't thought about. Ultimately, that means toward a revolutionary change, toward a whole a whole system change. Charlie, uh, we have that. We have that in single payer. We have that in the in the uh, in the idea of changing the healthcare system radically. Seventy yeah. percent of the people in this country support it. If that isn't I, a radical reform, and if that doesn't have enough support. And yet it doesn't happen and it's not leading to anything revolutionary. So we need, I think, a little more flesh, something more than just that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there are many, many people in the society who feel like Obamacare is not enough. You know, they think defending Obamacare is an important thing to do. 70%. 70%. Yeah. I mean, you know, when when Bernie came in, who's not a revolutionary, but sort of defines himself as a democratic socialist, he got, you know, strong support in those Midwestern states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. He he outran. Why did he outrun those? Because he was arguing for a more broader kind of systemic change than Hillary Clinton certainly was, or the Democratic Party generally was. Well, there's been a diffusion, you know, Bernie's part of, Bernie does not satisfy, particularly in his current state around the war in the Middle East, is not my ideal person, but Bernie is an unrelenting voice for criticism of capitalism and for some transformative possibility. That way of thinking is spreading in the population. We know that from, from polls. And as I said, you know, they're, they're, I look at those polls about, you know, 50% of young people in the country, if you ask them, how do you feel about the word socialism versus the word capitalism? More than 50% of young people today say they, they have a positive association with the word socialism and a negative association with the word capitalism. If you look at all people of all ages in the Democratic Party, it's about 45-55, 45% of Democrats say they have a favorable association with the word socialism and 55%. So you're seeing, you're right, there are in the population. Let, let, let's take them out of the Democratic Party. Let's Take them out of the Democratic Party. Yeah, and the Republican Party took the ad to abolitionists out of the Whigs. The contradictions yeah. that grew in the Whig Party. Yeah, I just, I just, don't, I don't think you. I think you know, it's sort of like the Gortzian idea. I think you can do two things simultaneously. You can work where with whatever resources. If, if you can do work with Bernie and the Progressive Caucus in ways to stop the Gaza thing right now, to begin to reorient American foreign policy because people are so sickened by the massacres going on in the Middle East right now. Um, you do that at the same time that you use that 
as a kind of reformism that is emerging in the Democratic Party that you you try to leverage more radical change. That's where the movements come from. I agree with you that the, the parties will never make a, the kind of broad systemic change that you need unless you're getting that agitation on the ground. But I don't see it. You sort of seem, seem to be saying it all goes one way. And I think like in a period no, like no, we no, are- No, 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 let, let me clarify. I, no, I, I have no, no, I don't, I don't expect people, I mean, I don't want to, I have, I support Democrats locally. I mean, I support people in mm -hmm. Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. I give money, I, I advocate mm -hmm. for them. They're operating in the Democratic Party. What I see is the sliding of the other options. You need that pressure. And during the, the New Deal, it was a critical factor in the New Deal being the New Deal, there'd be a left-wing outside the Democratic Party force the labor movement, the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, and so on, that press the Democrats into being good guys. They'll never do it on their own. Well, I agree and, with that. And so in, in a real way, you've got to have that force outside. So where are the people working for that force outside? Well, let me just go back to what, what I told you. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, what, I, what I'm saying in our book is, and when I mentioned the Encuentro Cinco, that's, a, that's not a Democratic Party organization. That's a movement organization based right. in Boston, right? It's uh, so... My co-author is working with grassroots groups and national groups like DSA all over the country, um, which are pushing outside the Democratic Party for change, and they're pushing they're pushing the Democratic Party to the left and for more much more transformative agendas. I mean. I think, as you say, you're finding in Pittsburgh or wherever you're living right now, there are local struggles where you find yourself supporting Democrats. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying you, you, when the, what's important is that you're building consciousness in the general public. It's this is an educational struggle in part, which is why, why it's worth if it's worth at all. Right, we, we writing books. It's for this reason that you're building people's consciousness, which is already growing, that there's something about the way our fundamental economic system and the political system that's linked to it is organized, that you just can't solve these problems through traditional political you know, mechanisms. The party systems are not going to solve these problems. This book cannot be read as a thing of saying, just support the Democrats, and you're going to get a solution to all of the economic, environmental, and military problems that you're worried about. You know, it's an argument that you need these, this kind of this consciousness growing um, all over the country outside of the existing political structure, but but operating to push that party, and sometimes operating within the political party. I mean, again, I'm very believe that you have to be very inclusive about this right now because we don't have any time. If you right. make the wrong choice, um, you know, we, we need to bring as many different forces as far as where they can go. The party, the Democratic Party is not a winning party in terms of these ultimate changes, but it might wedge open some doors for part of the larger population that is sort of face to face with these issues. You know, it's going to be faced with flooding of their homes. They're not going to be able to live where they are. They're not going to be, people are going to be faced by objective circumstances as they were in the depression in different ways into objectively unsustainable positions. And they're going to see, they're going to look to the Democratic Party for some, some solutions. They're going to see the Democratic Party is not delivering enough solutions and it's going to create movement on the ground. And so you want to create all kinds of local mobilizations, community-based mobilizations, um, you know, workplace organizations that you can. But I don't see it as a kind of this or that thing. I see these things, given the time constraints and the weakness 
of these movements right now, that you have to pursue all of these paths simultaneously. Can the Democratic Party be used as a kind of wedge to push out some of these more reformist things in a way that's more radical? It's friggin' hard to do it. Um, but do I support people like who are aligned with the Democratic Socialists like Bernie and the, you know, the the squad and, you know, people like AOC or other people, you know, there's a in the Democratic Party, there's a group of about 100 people. Are they going to solve the problem? No. Should we just forget about them? In my view, not at all, because these people bring certain things to the table that can be used by movements. Uh, when I teach ordinary students. The fact that I can refer to certain people whose names they've heard of and say, look, these guys are saying you've got to go and organize on this campus for you, you need a you need a union on this campus. You need to divest this campus and all of its um, you know, pension funds and all that stuff from these big corporations and get them out of military companies and environmental companies and so forth. I mean, you 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 leverage these things wherever you can. And you know, you do it on the ground. You, you use the Democratic Party with a full recognition the Democratic Party is not going to be the solution to these problems, but that you can use it, you know, and you have to push it. And, and when the Democratic Party moves a little bit, that opens up more spaces for movement on the ground. And so I just think that we don't have the luxury of being incredibly, um, I don't know, orthodox and in our strategy of change. I mean, I think the truth is we don't really have any idea how it's possible to mobilize enough political energy in the current situation to deal with the overwhelming crises that we're facing in, in, the, in a pretty condensed time period. We just don't know. We don't, so, because we, for one thing, we don't, we don't have the historical precedent. We are in a historically unprecedented period. There's never been a crisis like this one. And so we have to, we're sort of going blind, but we have history to build on. That's why we look at the abolitionist movement, that why we look at other movements, which give us at least clues about how to move forward in the future. But the truth is, nobody knows exactly how to do it. You have to just, like you say, you can't take the academic position and just say, you just put this out there by, by writing it or teaching it and let and then go do your business. I mean, it's gotta be linked to a new energy for change that is, profoundly activist and you know you know and it, it's hard to do in this and we're in a culture which is really really strongly culturally wired to demobilize people to make people have no faith at all that change is possible to make people believe that um yeah i think things are terrible but um there's just no there's no way i can do anything so i'm going to retreat into my own little cocoon hope technology works or something like that and so I mean, we so, are Charlie. I think we better wrap it up because I, I'm. This is the longest podcast we've ever done. It's been <laughs> one of the best. And I, I, I feel like we should be sitting at Cam's having a beer and champagne right, and, and just right. keep going, going at it. But so because I'm going to stop here because I'm, I'm afraid if we go too far, I might not be able to upload this with the feeds <laughs> and such. But right. this is. This is def definitely worth worth buying. It's a great book. It's accessible. It's um you you write at a at a level that is easily understandable. And uh, I don't think I've been so fired up in a podcast in a long time, which is good. That those emotions are are helpful, and um, I think they're good emotions. So, well, Greg, any final you. thoughts? You're, you're an excellent diagnostician you're an excellent diagnostician of capitalism <laughs> and i really appreciate that and that's Thank so you. important and that you're in the university 
where you can give that diagnosis to right. youngsters is so, so important. Well, so thank you. I um, appreciate both of you. Thank you so much. Uh, you make me proud of my origins, knowing that this all came out <laughs> from around uh, the Midwest in Champaign-Urbana. So I'm not surprised that we were able to have a lively conversation. Yeah. But thank you both very much. I really enjoyed the Thanks, conversation. Thank you. thank you. Yeah. Thank you.